This episode is sponsored by Libro FM. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, you know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. In July, Libro FM launched their Kids Club and YA Club, which will offer select audiobooks priced under $10 each month, as well well as their summer listening challenge. Each person to finish will get free audiobook credit and the chance to win free audiobooks for a year if you complete the challenge extra credit. Listeners of the Book Riot podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code BR3. That's capital B, capital R, the number three. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Libro.fm, code BR3. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 319. We're recording on Thursday, June 27th, 2019. Jeff O'Neill with Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. It's a website. It's a good one. You should check that out if you haven't in a while, bookriot.com. You can just punch it right in your browser, and there's stuff about books there every day, a bunch of it. Yeah. That's what we do. Magic. Not you and I. That's, what, that, that's the way it works. That's, that's what, the way it works. <laughs> Here we are. We're a punchy a little, today. I would say we're a little slap happy. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had some, you're back on coffee, which is, I think, one cup a day. Real good for the world. It's good yeah. for us here. Um, it's a, I, it's a, it's one of the great all time coffee days today. It's like 60 degrees and oh, rainy and sunny, you know, like me. it's just. Don't, no, one you of don't, these days. You don't talk to somebody who lives south of the Mason Dixon about your sixty degree weather when it's the middle of June. That's sure. just mean. I don't. I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> this is a factoid that's completely out of context. That I just told Rebecca that I think is worth passing along. For reason, this is what I do. This is just what I do. This is. I hey, was, did you know? Uh, I was at Wikipedia. A river runs through it last night. As um, one does. You know, drinking hard uh, a rosé hard cider and looking at Wikipedia about thirty year old literary adaptations. And a f- stat I didn't have stat, it's just a fact that I didn't know, was that A River Runs Through It was nominated for the Pulitzer. In fact, the way the Pulitzer Prize is awarded is the, there's the full Pulitzer board with people from a bunch of disciplines, but then each specific award for that here has an ad hoc committee that recommends to the board what they think the winner should be. And what, 90% of the time, Rebecca, they follow it, it seems to us, like, you know, an mm-hmm. award happens. But for some reason in 1977, the smaller subcommittee recommended a river run through it win the Pulitzer Prize, but the full board decided not to give an award at all. Not just not to a different book, just nothing at all, which I didn't know and I thought was a remarkable story. And it reminded us of the Karen Russell. Who else was up that year? I can't remember. It was, it was a couple of oh, people we knew. It was Karen Russell and someone kind of surprising. Yeah. And like Joyce Carol Oates or someone I and then something remember. else. And they didn't give an award, which were like, that would be a great annotated, except they don't talk. Like, I don't know if they have NDAs or it's a mm-hmm. gentlewoman's agreement or whatever else it might be. But um, I was shocked because both of, you know, it's, it's one of the great adaptations, I would say, of my lifetime, the, the movie version of A River Runs Through, mm-hmm. in a wonderful read if you haven't read the novella. Um, I think now the illustrated version that's in hardback and print is just A River Runs Through, it, which is a novella. The original one had a couple of short stories that went along with it, which are also excellent. But there's your literary fact of the day out there, people. 
And just to catch us up, that was 2012, um, 2012. when Karen Thank Russell was nominated. That was for Swamplandia. She was nominated along with David Foster Wallace's The Pale King. That's and, what it was. And Dennis Johnson's Train Dreams. And now, like, seven years later, that's really surprising that they didn't give the award to any of those books. That would be another good segment we should do every time they win the they award the Pulitzers. Go back 5, 10, 20 years and say, what should they have done? Did the right, mm. did the right book win? The Hindsight um, Award. Hindsight Award. Like, um, anyway, so that's, that's uh, I don't know, we're just shucking and jiving here a little bit. So let, tell us about their first sponsor, Rebecca. Get into this <laughs> All right. Our first sponsor this week is Some Like It's Scandalous by Meyer Rodale. The only way Theodore Prescott III will survive his most recent outrageous scandal is to marry someone <clears throat> respectable and sensible like Daisy Swan. But Daisy's plans do not involve a loveless marriage with anyone. Daisy aspires to sell the cosmetics that she creates, but this scientist needs a smooth-talking charmer to make it a success. When a family secret threatens to destroy her standing in society, a fake engagement with Theo will make her dreams come true. Before long, Daisy and Theo are trading kisses and secrets and discovering that despite appearances, they might be the perfect couple after all. This is from the Gilded Age Girls Club series. It's all about women who succeed in the man's world of Gilded Age New York. Daisy Swan is a scientist. She specializes in cosmetics, and she's inspired by some of the real female entrepreneurs of the late 19th century. Two uh, two favorite romance novel tropes also combine in this book for one explosive romance, as sworn enemies Theo and Daisy are forced to avoid a scandal by staging an engagement. So that is Some Like It's Scandalous by Maya Rodale. Thanks to them for sponsoring. Follow-up ongoing interests. Um, this is now added to our list of ongoing interests along with book bannings and things like that. Um, I guess it is a book banning, frankly, mm-hmm. but specifically book bannings that happened in prisons. And this is in my, um, my state, Oregon, Department mm-hmm. of Corrections, barred inmates from reading dozens of books about technology and programming, 1,600 titles that have been banned, including Blockchain Revolution, The Hidden Language of Computer Hardware and Software, Windows 10 for Dummies, Python program for beginners, blockchain revolution, so on and so forth. If you listen to what episode it was, I think episode 25 of Annotated, the first of the two episodes we did about banning books in prisons and reading behind bars, talked about why these books get banned. The security risk is what the the blanket reason people give. Um, This one they're saying it's a security risk, um, basically a spokesman person for the Oregon DOC said, you know, we teach classes, the review happens, gobbledygook, nonsense talk. I'm just summarizing for you about there. Look, what I've learned so far, and I'm not an expert, I'm, you know, uh, an interested amateur about the process and rationale for keeping books out of prison is largely that the DOCs don't want to think about it too much. And it sounds to me here like someone said, well, they could learn how to hack. One of them was Black Hat Python. Black Hat, for those of you who were, say, born in the 1890s, <laughs> means basically bad actors using computers to hack into systems. The Black Hat, you know, the villain. Um, and they say, I can see why those sorts of things might not be allowed. Like you wouldn't allow the Anarchist Cookbook probably, which might make sense. You probably shouldn't allow books about hacking. But Windows 10 for Dummies is how to use computers. Um, but I'm guessing what's happening here is rather than educating or have work educating its um, staff or providing this with any kind of granularity. The Oregon DOC is just saying, let's make it easy on ourselves and just get rid of all of them. Kind of like the, the absurd example I, we talked about 
um, with a board member from Seattle Books for Prisoners, like you can't get some copies of Game of Thrones because there's maps of Westeros in them because all maps are banned because they don't want you to get maps of the local area so you can't escape. So you get this telescoping absurdist cascade. I'm mixing my metaphors there, but you get the idea about you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, not just the bathwater, but the kitchen sink and the kitchen. Maybe a better part of the neighborhood is also going out with the baby in these particular things. The baby in the bathwater is exactly the metaphor I was going to reach for mm. here, too. It's interesting that they're, they do give a little more info farther down in this Gizmodo piece about how um, some of the people who are in custody have like left messages for each other in the computers that inmates have mm. a lot of access to computers. But um, her name, Kelly Raths from the Oregon DOC, she's an administrator, um, tells the Salem reporter that people have a lot of access to computers. And when the prisons began giving people in custody computer access, some of them left messages for other inmates through the computers. That's a significant threat to us. She tells them like, okay, but there are a lot of ways that that could occur. Like, um, I don't know yeah. if inmates are allowed to have email accounts. I, I believe that they are. But, like, didn't we have someone very high up in government who got busted having an affair by, like, writing <laughs> draft emails in a Gmail account that they both had access to? Like, mm -hmm. no emails were actually sent. There are a lot of ways that this could occur that have nothing to do with programming. And programming is a very useful skill to have. So there's, like, there's some very real tension here between access to information that could be rehabilitative and help a person have a fresh start when they come out of prison and just really overdoing control. Like I understand also prisons have limited resources. There are all kinds of concerns going on, but like this just seems ridiculous. Yeah. Yep. Um, again, I'm glad these sorts of stories get attention. We haven't heard about an overturning or anything else here. Um, but in, in the name of keeping everyone uh, mm -hmm. informed, there's that story. Like, um, are they also banning, I don't know, like yard care for dummies because it might teach you how to dig and then you could dig your way out? Andy I, I don't style? know. I don't know. Masonry for dummies. Um, right. I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, there, there's a part of me that understands it's a very difficult task to basically scan every book in existence to try to keep stuff they don't want in out. On the other hand, this seems like an awfully ham-handed mm -hmm. way of doing it. Yeah, there's um, no nuance whatsoever. No, no, no nuance whatsoever. A more follow-up um, about, this is a counter-narrative, a another point of view, I guess, mm -hmm. to the story we talked about related to this weird, secret Barnes & Noble or Regio-funded uh, literary fellowship. Um, I didn't read all the way through this. Did you, Rebecca? Like, I what did. was the takeaway here? Um, well, so the piece that was in the New Yorker last week sort of hit on some of the bigger, sort of like broad themes of things that were concerning about this weird fellowship. And the writer of that piece mentions that there was some racist stuff happening, mentions feeling that the people of color in the program felt very tokenized and were not treated well. There's also like I think truly scandalous connections between the people running the program and the Regios. There's like someone who shows up in the program and doesn't reveal that she, her maiden name is Regio. It's all very, it's all very strange, but this piece by um, Hafiza Getter talks about like big details in a much more, well, they're, they're detailed and it's very troubling. She gives some, um, 
quotes from interactions that she had with the folks running the program and sort of fleshes out in a more clear eyed's not the term, but she's not trying to gloss over anything mm. or make it seem maybe not as bad as it was. And she makes a few points in throughout this piece that she thinks maybe the New Yorker piece was a little too soft um, or did not like fully go at presenting like, here's what happened. Here is how people who ran this program talked to the people of color. Um, here is how they like repeatedly denied that racism is a thing or that white supremacy is an issue. And, um, she gives a lot of examples and illustrations, and it's just very troubling. Um, worth reading if that's a story that you're following, for sure. Yeah, um, I have a bookmark. I just haven't got mm-hmm. there. Um, so that's another follow-up there. Uh, let's do, we get into, I guess these are ongoing. Are we going to, it sounds like there was a bunch of writers in that program. I'm now wondering, Yeah. are we going to get a bunch of these? I guess I hope we do. Mm-hmm. Um, a very strange... Yeah, notably, it's, I wonder if it's a something or nothing. I'm guess I guess the 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 point she makes is this is symptomatic. Like this particular yes. instance isn't an earth shattering, super hugely influential moment or space, but it's wildly representative of the kind of experience, especially writers of color mm-hmm. have in publishing, in writing, in white spaces writ large. Yeah, um, and notably, so. no one has come out with a big essay in defense of any of this or saying that they had a yeah. wonderful experience in the program and gosh i am i am horrified <laughs> to find out that this was occurring with my colleagues like yeah yeah it sounds like this this person especially that's the focus of both pieces had a following out with the program and the thing dissolved so it kind of collapsed under its own crappy weight so to speak somehow mm-hmm. but um there's still stories and lessons to be learned from it it looks like going to do another sponsor the share triumph virtual conference Almost everyone has had a family member or loved one impacted by cancer, and it can be an isolating experience. The goal for the Share Triumph Virtual Conference is for you to have the chance to hear resilient stories from people like you and learn from their experiences. In addition, they've gathered groundbreaking doctors, surgeons, oncologists, as well as therapists, authors, nonprofit organizations, podcasters, comedians, and entrepreneurs who create products for survivors and metastatic thrivers. You'll learn new skills and practical tips but she'll find the joy in being part of our Share Triumph community, which often comes with a dash of humor as we tr- stay true to our triumphant spirit, even when we experience tough times. You're going to learn things like, what should you say and not say to someone struggling with cancer? Best advice for caregivers. How you can feel good in your own skin after surgery. How to use writing to help with your mental health. How an oncologist turned from caregiver to patient and discuss what to say to young children about cancer. Learn from a doctor who created a shared decision-making app for survivors, and hear stories from more than 20 women who survived cancer, chemo, um, brain surgeries, multiple surgeries, and the aftermath. So you can go check out Share Triumph Virtual Conference. There'll be a link in the show notes if you or someone you know would benefit from that. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Okay. Well, well, well. <laughs> um, I found this story, and you're paywalled out, so I gotta, I'm got going to give mm. you the brief one. Okay. I'll put a link in the show notes for those of you who may subscribe or have one of your – well, you'll roll over on July 1st. You can go check it out um, here pretty quick. So this is a story about a public housing project in Chicago where it, it's called the Taylor Street Apartments and Little Italy Library Branch – 
which on the bottom floor, or maybe it looks like the first two floors. I love renderings of libraries. This is incredible. Um, they always look so great. Where it's going to have, on the, on the first floor, it's going to have the library, but on the upper floors, it's going to have 44 units of subsidized senior living. Oh. So it's a way of you know con- connecting these um, publicly run, subsidized, made possible organizations that benefits both communities that are using it. So it's a $34 million project. And it says it's shaped like a twisty garden hose trimmed in fluorescent green, backing onto a historic bungalow district along a stretch of avenue that features, you know, some more industrial kind of things. Mm-hmm. 44 one-bedroom apartments for seniors, and they sit atop a bright glazed double-height 16,000-square-foot library. The apartments have floor-to-ceiling windows, with a community garden in the back to help negotiate the tricky transition between the bungalows and the busy avenue. Um, I think this is wonderful. We're going to talk in, in a few minutes about some stories about bookstores being subsidized, getting special deals from the community. And this is one of those situations where I think it's interesting to think about these spaces that have almost universal, I guess what you call approval rating. Like what has a better approval rating than your public library? Mm. I mean, literally nothing. Um, I wouldn't guess, especially when it comes to government. And how can you use that affinity people have to support other projects that maybe are have a hard time getting funded? One that's an ongoing discussion in, in this town is homeless services, transitional housing, um, rehabilitation centers, uh, women, sh- women and children shelters. There's a very not-in-my-backyard situation. Mm-hmm. And there could be a way in which you think about using the library as not a Trojan horse, but as a a Lego piece that you connect with something else to think about. This is what community means. You get, you get to be supportive and have your own support in the same space. Um, so I, I really endorse thinking about libraries as pieces and anchors of other larger scale government or, or city projects um, to really make hubs. Because people think well of the library and they become community spaces and they can really connect pieces of community together. So if this is the kind of thing you care about, I really recommend looking at this article. And this seems to be a thing that's going around. We, used, we talked to, for a while about it. I never know if it, if it came to fruition. A bunch of Brooklyn libraries um, being raised and then rebuilt with apartments on top of them, a mix of affordable, mm-hmm. um, subsidized, and market rate houses. But library spaces, um, I think, are interesting ways of thinking about connecting to the wider community. And this seems to me, one of the, this is one of the most exciting ones I've seen, frankly. Um, yeah, so I encourage you to really go check interesting. it out. Um, so it's called the Independence Library. And it's the kind of library you, you'd love to have in your own, uh, in your own neighborhood. Because like, I'm not sure about your, I mean, podcastatbookride.com, I'd like to know this. Your local branch library that you go to, is it a standalone building or not? Yes, mine is. This is one of the unfortunate legacies of the very great Carnegie Library initiative. Mm. Um, is they're still around and some of them have been repurposed, but they're very much a standalone building. And I think they've gotten, they created a mental model of what a library is to be a standalone thing. Yeah, um, I think that's really true. Yeah, rather as there's no reason it can't be integrated into a larger building, especially in urban environments with density. Right. Less, I think density is a good no matter what. So mm-hmm. I've lived in New York for 15 years. So <laughs> I think if you can make it a part of a larger building, that makes all the sense of the world. Um, but I this one is especially just, great. Yeah. I love just philosophically the idea of connecting libraries to other forms of social services yeah. for people as a real reminder to the community that these are all things that, 
go together. Like you're, yeah. you're paying taxes in this community and it's supporting the library and it's supporting uh, access to care for homeless people, for women and mm-hmm. children who are out of their homes or it's supporting senior housing or like all of those things. And being reminded of that, I think we can use, it's never bad to be reminded of that. But I love the the notion of like a city planner sitting down to be like, okay, these are the problems that we're trying to solve and being able to solve multiples in one go by doing something like putting a library on the first couple of floors and then putting housing above it. It's really smart. I love that. I also now want to retire to an apartment building that has a library on the basement. Obviously. I mean, it, it does make sense. I mean, one, one of the many challenges um, people face as they get older is increasing isolation, social isolation mm-hmm. as they, you know, their friends um, and family get older or die. Um, they, they, fall, they fall out of or willfully retire from their workforces. Senior isolation is a big deal. And having a library in the building seems to me uh, mm-hmm. would be a boon to all sorts of, for all yeah. sorts of reasons, but also people getting out of prison as a halfway house connection to the resources a library provides. There's just, there's so many goods. It's almost seems ridiculous mm-hmm. to do it any other way. I yeah. guess is what I'm trying Libraries to say. have so much programming and I think it's pretty common to do programming that combines opportunities for kids with opportunities for senior citizens yeah. or like interaction between children and senior citizens. So a library is a really nice place to do that, especially when you have senior citizens living above it. Um, just a ton of, you could get so creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I want to see drag queen story hour at the library oh. that has the senior citizen home. Just all the things. I think that would be a great idea. Uh, let's do tech news. Scribd, oh, Scribd right. doing Scribd things. <laughs> Yep. Mm, so Scribd launches the digestible snapshot. Now we're mixing metaphors, uh, which is a sum- basically summaries of books that you can read, digest, uh, you know, other eating metaphors, notes. I guess. Yeah, it's Cliff Notes. It's Cliff Notes. They have 500 of them now, but they're supposed to help readers with content discovery by giving them a quick way to see whether they want to take the plunge into a full-length version of the digest they've just skimmed. I don't know anyone that consumes anything this way. So I'm really no. interested if that's yeah, what they really you know, are trying to do with this or what this is. Yeah, I'm confused about this. Like there's a service that already exists called Blinkist that does yeah. this. And I think Blinkist primarily does it for like business and nonfiction titles of like, you don't need to read the entire Malcolm Gladwell book. We'll tell you what it's about in 15 minutes. And I believe those are audiobooks. I might be wrong. I'll have to okay. double check my Blinkist facts. But like that exists as a, and they're, they kind of know what they're about. Like, you're not going to go read the whole book. Here is a 15-minute digest of it. It's It seems weird to me that Scribd's approach is we're going to give you the 15-minute digest in hopes that then you will buy or read the entire book. Like, the response that I've had about Blinkist is like, that's great for people who don't read books or who don't mm-hmm. want to read the whole book. But like a book person, like the people who listen to this show, wants to read the whole book and like a 15 minute snapshot is not satisfying. Like if you got all A's in high school English, you're not out to read the cliff notes. You want the whole thing. And I think that this is a misunderstanding of like, if you're using Scribd, which is an all you can, like the closest we have to like an all you can eat reading platform, you're probably not the kind of reader who's like, well, rather than reading that book, I'm just going to 
read the summary of it. And also, if you've read the entire summary of it, why do you want to get into the Yeah, I'm not details? sure. So there's, I don't think it makes I can, sense. I think there's a generous and ungenerous reading to most things. I think there's <laughs> a couple more here, too. One is like, in this article, it's on Forbes, link in the show notes as always, that they cite some um, survey data from a Harris poll about people who want to read. 81% of those respondents don't read as much as they'd like to. The biggest reason is not having enough time, with the follow-up being it's easier to do other things, 22%. And the implication is that this would help that 81% of people say, I actually do read as much as I want. But I think Mm -hmm. to your point, that's not what people mean when they say they wish they had more time to read. They don't wish they had more time to read Cliff's Notes, because you know what? Cliff's Notes already exist. I think maybe what's happening here is Scribd, let's use the tipping point, just, you know, it's on Mm -hmm. every paperback, whatever, bestseller favorites, a a great example of the kind of thing someone might want to know the gist of, but not read the whole book. My guess is Scribd can summarize that book, have you read that summary, and then you don't read the tipping point, then they don't have to pay Little Brown. Oh! Because you haven't opened the tipping point. Is that, what do you think about that uh, tin hat theory? I like it when you're more skeptical than I am. (laughs) It doesn't happen very often. It doesn't. So that's my first response. I'm just a little tingly from you (laughs) being more skeptical. That's an interesting take, Jeff Hmm. O'Neill. Well, the the reason I was thinking about this, because you see on an Amazon where you're like, especially with a big book, we were just talking about where the crawdad sing being sort of the big book club book of the year. Not sort of, it definitely is. Mm -hmm. No need to equivocate. And I was trying to figure out, um, how did this come up? Oh, I was on Audible. It came up 65,000 reviews on Audible, just by the way, for that, which is the most I've seen of late. So I went on to Amazon to see something equivalent there. And I noticed that people, you know, they give you the people also looked at or people Mm -hmm. also bought. And there was this little book that's $3.99. It was like a summary of Where the Crawdads Sing, which I, and you don't, they don't have to pay royalties to, I believe it's a, Oh, I don't know, Simon Schuster book. Mm-hmm. I can't remember who the publisher is right now. Anyway, that summary can summarize the book without having to pay any royalties to the publisher of the actual book. And they can SEO the heck out of it. And people who are getting a book club, or they may not know what they're buying, they're one clicking yeah. on their Kindle or something else. I feel like it's getting in the way of this other interest stream. Yeah. You know, it's kind of putting your body in front of the, it is what's happening here. The interpretation that I've heard several times about these summaries, because like right now I'm looking at Amazon since you mentioned that, and there are like half a dozen summaries by different people of where the crawdads seem published by different people. And I've heard it as basically, uh, that it's, it's predatorial, um, on people who are just searching and don't realize that they're not getting the novel. They're just getting a summary. Like maybe there are people who just want to pay six 99 to get a paperback summary of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, but the pieces that I've read about it, and I think the anecdotal stuff that I've heard is that like most of the time the people buying those things don't, realize or the assumption is that they don't realize that that's what they're getting they actually wanted the whole book but that's i i like this theory i don't know if i'm willing to believe that scribd is that crafty Mm. Mm, yeah um or that it would actually work um but the tipping point i think is a really good example of like what you could just read the summary of and not need to read the whole book but that i mean it would be very crafty if that's what they were after I suspect this is another case of um, not quite understanding what readers' problems really are. Like this thing about people, 81% of people saying they don't read as much as they'd like to and that they don't have time. Like the thing when people answer a survey that way, 
I'm like, I don't read as much as I would like to. And I get paid <laughs> to think about books, you know, like is the thing you're talking, yeah. I think you're saying like, I don't get to sit down and do the one, do one thing at a time when that one thing is like sink into a book and just do that. Um, as much as I'd like to, I want that experience of reading more. It's not like I just want to put more yeah. book shaped knowledge into my brain. Yeah. I don't get, need to get my reading steps in. So, right. right. Exactly. Like you're not just trying to like hit a Fitbit reading goal or close those loops or whatever they are on your Apple watch for reading enough words in a day. It's like having that experience that people are going after. And if that's the case, you can't solve for that experience in a 15 minute summary of anything. This brings me back to this point. I've wondered about this kind of a question because we see this poll data from time to time about people who don't read as much as they'd like to. This is 81%. I wonder if buried in there or some subset of that 81% is also, and I'm sure you know people like this, that I tell them what I do and they say they wish they had more time to read. And I Mm -hmm. talked to them for a few minutes, but what they really mean is they want to, they want to want to read more. Yeah, Mm -hmm. They actually don't want to read more. They want to want to read more, yeah. which I think is a meaningfully different I think, thing. I think every now and then I hear somebody either like Freudian slip it or just be honest and be like, oh, I feel like I should read more. Yeah, right. Is that wanting to read more? They and, don't actually want to read. They right. want to want to read. Yeah. And I, I mean, my response, and I think we've talked about this in some of our Q&A shows, is like, you don't have to read any right. amount, you know, <laughs> like right. to, for, to be to be anything like if you want to read great um liberty and i get it sometimes on all the books of like how can i how can i read more i feel like i should read more and it's like well i think if the thing you love is books then there's never and like there's first of all never a place where you're like oh i get to read enough in the same way of like i don't feel like i ever get to spend enough time outside you know like there's always more i could always do more but yeah, I think some of it does come from that of like people we have we ascribe this like social and cultural good to reading. And if you are answering a survey, probably about how many books have you read in the last year, you know, like you just had to tell someone I've read one book this year. And then the next question is like, do you get to read as much as you want? (laughs) Of course, you're going to say, no, I want to read more. Um, But I think if Scribd is if, if Scribd is being genuine here with like, we're trying to solve this problem by giving people the ability to read more, but with doing this, then they have misunderstood what's going on. It's like saying you want to watch more movies and then people, then just somebody handing you the thing to that, like nothing but trailers, you know, of like, yeah. well, instead of watching a two hour movie, why don't you spend 20 minutes watching trailers for eight movies? <laughs> I mean, you could be right and they don't know what they're doing or they could really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could go either way. I'd love to know if the stated thing they're saying is, it helps readers discover books because you'll read the 15-minute summary and be super interested in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know the conversion rate of that. What well, percentage of got, people read the summary go on and read yeah. the tipping point? Well, and that's one way that they're presenting it. Like Trip Adler, the CEO of Scribd, says in the press release, by providing quick, snackable previews of top nonfiction books. Somebody snap- isn't a preview. Anyway, sorry. That's <laughs> Snapshots can help publishers and authors to get their titles in front of large audiences who are likely to enjoy them. So they're setting this up as discovery, as the first bites free. Well, how else would you? How else would you present it other than that? I know. I just think like, are they really that sneaky that they're going to present it to publishers as this is great for you? We're helping you with discovery while also really having the ulterior motive of we hope that they'll read the summary and not actually buy your book. Mm. I just don't think they're that crafty. You know, I'm just realizing too, we need, you know how in like in uh, NBA games or most sporting events now they have like a referee on call or a formal mm. referee on call. Mm-hmm. I need like a, a, a copyright lawyer on call for these. <laughs> 
Because like, what is the, what's the legal grounds on which you can summarize a nonfiction work and sell it? I mean, because isn't that IP theft to some degree? I'm like, I know in academia there's different standards and you're citing and whatever, but it does seem to me if you're providing mm-hmm. a 15-minute summary of the tipping point, aren't you essentially taking the information and labor therein and condensing it? And is that, I mean, is it, I know one of the thresholds um, that, that fair use is transformational. Is that, is, condens- is condensation transformational? Now we're in physics or like particle physics or something. But I, I, I feel like that's a, I'm suddenly feeling very gray about that intellectual and artistic and sort of commercial enterprise, um, commodifying summaries of other people's intellectual work. I don't think I like that. Yeah, it seems a little shady. Yeah, like, like Blinkist was the, the, are they paying Little Brown per read of their summary of the tipping point? I, I wonder about Okay, that. I could be wrong, but I think that I have read about, like Blinkist is partnering with publishers to make okay. that happen. Yeah. Okay. And maybe publishers, maybe publishers know. Maybe they do. If you'll read 10 minutes, you'll read um, 300 pages. Maybe they know and we're totally wrong. But um, I've, I've got my skeptical hat on. <laughs> Just I'll let you keep it for a little while. Really, it's sunglasses. Skeptical sunglasses. This is the most skeptical of um, accessories, no doubt. The skeptical shades. The shades of skepticism. Um, yeah. <laughs> the shades of doubt. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, these are two related stories. And I don't really... I mean, they're clearly related, we'll, we'll talk about, but they're basically about efforts, initiatives, victories in thinking about independent bookstores as something different than a completely commercial enterprise. Mm-hmm. So the first story, um, which I encountered first this week, is there's an African-American bookstore in Washington, D.C. called Sankofa. And it won a appro- uh, approval for a 10-year tax abatement from the Washington, D.C. City Council. The, the move will potentially save the store $415,000. And it, according to Sankofa, which has been open since 1988, says that, that will make the difference in allowing them to stay open. They were facing a tax bill of $30,000 for the year. Um, the co-founder, um, Shiri Kiana, Garima um, appealed saying, you know, this is something we need to do. Um, The tax break interestingly has these conditions that half of the bookstore's employees live in DC and that more than 30 of them live in ward one. So right around the store. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really interesting example. 30%. 30% what I say. 30. Oh, okay. Ratio, not a raw number. That more than 30% of them live in ward one. So you not only have to live there, all of the or half the employees have to live in D.C., and then 30% of them need to live in the neighboring area. And I think my understanding, and we're going to get to, uh, maybe connect this to the next story, is the claim is that the bookstore is good for the community. Our employees live and work and provide tax bases here. Mm-hmm. And so this is like, great, we'll give you a tax break, but also you got to put your people yep. where your mouth is mm-hmm. um, about the claim you are making. So that seems like a real victory. I don't know what the law... I have no idea what the law is. I guess the city council could just approve an abatement for an individual business just because they want to. Uh, Interesting. I had no idea that was something that could happen. And it sounds like the kind of thing that book culture, which is a multiple... It has multiple stores in Manhattan and New York City, is asking for. Um, Chris Dablin, Dublin, D-O-E-B-L-I-N, the owner-operator of Book Culture, they have four storefronts in New York City, three in Manhattan, and one in Queens. It's a long Facebook 
thing. It's a little strange uh, of a document basically saying we are in trouble and we would like help without being specific. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the plea at the end is if you run the city or the state, if I run the state, um, or if you have means to assist, or even if it simply means calling and emailing and writing the local city council member where you live and the mayor and governor, please do so. The price of doing business doesn't have to be incurred by the people. The price of doing business should be more about serving our common welfare. There's, it's a diatribe. Did you read this whole thing? Yeah, I did. What would you call It's a little more, let's say, informal. Like some yeah. of the, even like, there's a thing about billionaires and... I mean, it reads like a long rant on the internet by someone who thinks they've been wrong. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a long rant on the inter- internet. And I thought it was interesting to see in conjunction with this Sankofa mm-hmm. deal, because it sounds like exactly the kind of thing that I, Chris Deblin should be asking for. Like, I here's think, a thing that happened over here, but I'm not sure. The ask at the end is very vague. It's, it and it feels is, more yeah. desperate because of it, I think. Yeah, it's very it's, like throwing your hands up and please help. I don't well, know. The, it's the kind of thing where I think like a concise, here's what's going on. Here's how you can help specific request um would go a long way like 800 or a thousand words or however many this is it might be more than that is like that's a lot to read through it looks like a screed on the internet it seems less Mm -hmm. formal like there's not a great this is not organized very well like if the thing you're trying to do is compel people to either give you money or take some sort of political action on your behalf it's just like not done very well um the Sankofa, I think these are similar, but not the same. They're not. In not. that the Sankofa one, it's notable in the Publishers Weekly piece that one of the co-founder um, says that she hopes that this is an example that sparks protections to be put in place for small black businesses. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about legacy businesses who have been here through crack, through, in some cases, the riots, through gentrification and the latest devastation, and they need to be supported in really concrete ways. And that the taxes are going up in this neighborhood of Washington, D.C. because of gentrification. And this store has been there for a long time. Their neighborhood is being changed in ways that longtime residents of the neighborhood don't appreciate and are negatively impacted by. And this tax abatement allows a longtime business to stay there. I think it's really notable that Shiri, uh, Shikiri, Shiri, I can't read right now, Shiri Kiana Jarima is saying that like she's not like waving the flag of save bookstores. She's talking nope. about the importance of a legacy black owned business in a traditionally black neighborhood. The business sells books about Africa and African Americans and serves a community surrounding a historically black college. Like all of that context is really important. We don't know what's going on in book culture. Like th- this is the that's the thing that's really missing from the book culture piece is like, what is the specific problem? Like there have been pieces by other indie bookstore owners in New York talking about how the proposed, or maybe it's been enacted now, minimum wage increase. It's been enacted. So the minimum wage increase really impacts independent bookstores because they operate on super thin margins. And that's a very real problem. And I'm suspecting that that's what's going on at book culture, that having to pay a higher minimum wage is impacting what they're able to do. Yeah, it does say the last 30 months, the payroll costs for book culture have risen by 50%. Okay, okay. so there it is. Like yeah. The payroll is higher, and they need help in some way. And so maybe tax abatement would help them because they'd be paying less money out, but it's not like a... It's not like a one for... It's not a no. penny on... Or what is it? A checker on a checker. It's checker not putting a checker. a checker on a checker. Like 
in the Sankofa situation, their taxes are super high, largely because of gentrification. They were able to get a tax abatement. The book culture cases, your payroll is high because now you have to pay minimum wage that mm-hmm. all businesses have to pay. What like what's the solution supposed to be? And like and why is book culture special, I think, like, is the thing that I don't understand here, like, a a lot of different small businesses, I'm sure are feeling this, like, are there hardware mom and pop hardware store owners posting these same things asking the local government to save them? Probably not, because book people lean on like this perceived nobility of books and reading, and we deserve to be saved more than other businesses. And it's like it did not compel me to take any kind of action because I'm unclear on what kind of action I'm supposed to take, mm-hmm. but also on like why. Yeah, it's not. It's um, Chris says that they've made the structural change to our company and the cuts that will allow us to move ahead properly once we find the financial resources we need. It sounds like they need a pot of money to get through. Look, I'm sure it's really difficult that they're you know they had a business built on a certain payroll structure and cost basis for what mm-hmm. it took to get people to work in their store. Without saying that it's right or wrong about the minimum wage, I can understand that that is a material change. And bookstores, especially in Manhattan, are not high profit margin businesses. So I can only imagine the difficulty of doing that. There's a quality to it, though, that does make you wonder doesn't everyone who has a small business right. in New York employ people that work there? Um, you know, I have friends that own architecture firms and work at architecture firms in New York and start them from the ground up. Why and, and why, why this? And I think the implicit reason is bo- because books. Because books, right. Because books. Which I think there's an element to that here, and I think it'd be interesting to, to bring it to the city council to ask for a specific kind of legislation to say, my bookstore does X for the community, and I would like the city council to recognize that by giving us whatever they could to help us stay in business. That's not, doesn't seem to be what's going on here. It sounds to me, and I hate to say it, that they're in a desperate situation and this is a Hail Mary I can put on the internet and maybe something will happen. Like it does read a lot more like they're at, the book culture is at its wits end mm-hmm. with this because there's not a plan of any kind. It's, it's very much, if anyone knows anybody, which is the language of a desperate yeah. situation, which I'm not happy to hear. No, um, but it does it does start in stark contrast to this other plan, this other situation, where the it's been in the works for years. It's much more located and articulated around a specific need and story about what could happen differently here. I think this the one point that Chris makes is interesting. Many large development plans, including Amazon H2Q and Long Island City example, included a cost to taxpayers of $48,000 per job. I don't know if no, that number is right, but his point was there are subsidies for new businesses mm-hmm. coming into New York, even though he doesn't mention that that actually got killed, so those subsidies <laughs> don't exist. But there is some sort of like, is it fair that these new businesses these big, can get these big subsidies and tax abatements and concessions where those of us holding on by our fingernails doing good work in the city have to play by these other rules 
And yeah, I'm not sure what the answer is to that. I think I, it's very difficult. Yeah, I think it is really difficult. And there's a lot going on here. Like this is very likely about many things and not yeah. just the increased minimum wage. Like bookstores do feel the pressure of the fact that Amazon gets structural support yes. from the government when they go into new cities in a way that if you were like if book culture didn't exist yet and they were going to go open up in New York, they would not get the same kind of structural support. And it does create an uneven playing field that benefits giant corporations that already have a lot of benefits on their side mm. when they're there. This is, I just think this could have been done a lot better. It leaves a lot of questions. And I think it does play too much on the, because books angle when also I think it's important to mention like that the publishing industry plays a role in this yeah. as well. Like one of the reasons that it's that independent bookstores operate on such thin margins is that publishers could in my understanding, could but don't offer indies, you know, different discounts or better direct buying options that would let them increase their margins a little bit mm. more. Like if you need more margin, one of the most obvious places to get it is in the wholesale discount. And of all the things for sale in a bookstore, the books have the lowest margin. Right. Um, the industry could affect that, but publishers are afraid, and I think rightfully so, to offer independent bookstores any benefits that Amazon might perceive that they're not getting. Because then what is Amazon going to do to publishers? Like, do all of your buy buttons disappear? It's very tangly, but the solution mm. doesn't just fall to citizens and the government. Like, other businesses that are connected to the running of independent bookstores have opportunities to at least consider making changes that would support the ongoing existence of independent bookstores. Like if the publishing industry really loves indies as much as they like to say they do, there are things that could be done differently. Yeah. One, one, one example, you know, the, in the existing channels, increasing the wholesale discount from 40 percent ish to 50 percent ish, which is what we've heard is what Amazon can get because mm -hmm. of just scale yeah, is one way you could go. But another one I thought was interesting because there is a case to be made that just having books on the shelves in a bookstore is valuable to the publishing industry are some kind of carrying costs. Mm. Like you, you know, the bookstore would get 10 cents per month per title that it actually had on the shelves because it is a thin end of the wedge. You know, we, you know, showrooming as much as I think it's kind of a cost of doing business for being a retailer now, it also does benefit publishing. If I go into a bookstore and find the tipping point and say, Hey, I'm going to get that on Amazon. You could recognize from the publisher's point of view that, you're doing marketing for me by having it be browsable. They could go get it at their library or buy it somewhere else or get on Audible, especially as audiobooks become a bigger and bigger chunk of the market. They could think about those things differently. I think, I think the thing that's fascinating to me here is that this really speaks like it's coming straight from the id of, mm. of, of kind of an independent, minds, independent bookstore mindset. Not that everyone thinks like this, but it is an articulation in a public one of a big I'd say a very influential bookstore. It's an influential one in, in New York, at least, of this these kind of structural constraints. Amazon, cost of you know payroll is going up. Manhattan's more expensive than it's ever been. And yet here we are. And then what are we going to do about it? Because the answer isn't market-based. Clearly, it's not market-based. Right. So what other kind of answers are available to us? Um, and the, I think the case to be made for the value of a bookstore is interesting to think about also, but not translated here. Like our friend, you know, at print, Josh Christie thinks more about the community serving, you know, community organizations and events, weirdly not in, not, not, not mentioned here. 
it's all about how much tax revenue um, we generate. Um, but the service to the community is imp- it's imp- almost so obvious. It sounds like that he thinks it's so obvious it's implied mm. that the value is there that we should subsidize or New York or its neighborhood or whatever should subsidize in a way that other businesses don't get subsidized. Um, yeah. I mean, in, a, does, in a structural way. He does talk about book culture can take an empty storefront and spin it into a wonderful community asset that transforms a neighborhood. And that takes vision and creativity and courage and entrepreneurial talent, but like specifically laying out the way you serve what yeah. that community looks like in the way you serve your community, I think would be very compelling. And that's one of the things that's done in a very succinct fashion in the writing about Sankofa and what's happening in DC yeah. is like, it's, I have zero questions about why this is a problem totally great and point. why it's a problem, how it could and has been solved and how the community benefits from that solution. Yeah. But I think both of them are, are troubling the line about independent bookstores as quote unquote private enterprises that, co- that only compete on sort of market driven Mm-hmm. Um, vectors. And Sankofa made the case that, you know, there, there are things we are doing here that exist outside of the marketplace left to its own, like the invisible hand, right. so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think Chris is trying to articulate something similar, um, but it, I think it really is interesting to look at them in conjunction um, about what the way forward might be in some degrees. Like, I never considered this. Would it be possible for a city council or a local community community to pass some sort of legislation to, you know, like kind of like you get on your taxes. Do you want to give a dollar to your, Mm, um, mm -hmm. the campaign or what, you know, the the presidential campaign, could you do something similar for, I don't, I don't even know what you call them. Like common good businesses, like some sort of in between where you're not, it's not just taxes that would go to the library. Even you could opt into giving, contributing to a bucket of money that would get distributed to these businesses that qualify for whatever mm-hmm. that basically are subsidized directly, not through use. Cause that's what we're really talking about here is like, we want these things to exist and they can't really do it just on the normal foot traffic and business as usual pattern. So we have to do something else. Could you really make that structural to the sort of tax late to the taxpayer's point of view? Like I will, you know, pass a bond issue or something else like that. I think that'd be mm-hmm. fascinating yeah, it would be really to think about. I'd love to know from those of you who are, I know a lot of you out there work in independent bookstores, love them. Um, if you're seeing interesting things out there that independent bookstores are doing, always fascinated to hear this, or if we've gotten any of this wrong or right, podcast at bookriot.com. Again, link in the show notes to both um, of these particular stories we've talked about and everything else we've talked about today. I think that's our show, Rebecca. We got into that one. I think so. We did. It was meaty. When we did the the second episode of Annotated, which is how independent bookstores survived, I don't think there was any talk about this kind of stuff, about the sort of government intervention or, you know, I guess it's intervention to to um, cut taxes for a specific business. That's not something that was, we did that episode two years ago. It mm-hmm. wasn't really in the air to think about yeah, that. Because I think it was this before... recent development. Kind of before the big changes to the minimum wage, mm-hmm. I think. I, don't, I think these are, those are connected. Um, Oh, for for sure. sure. Definitely so. All right. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.